Kylie? Yeah, so last time we, we read Rue and Katniss teamed up. They were allies. Yeah, we don't know what's going on with PETA. We know, what do we know about PETA? Yeah, and what other information did, was it, do we have a name for District 2 boy? I don't want to give it without knowing if they already have. I think so. Cato. So what other information did Cato give us? What do we know about PETA from Cato? Anybody remember? Kylie? Yeah, that he's cut really badly, right, Olivia? Not a knife. Cato has a different weapon. It's much longer than a knife. A sword. He had made the comment that he's better with the sword because Glimmer tried to give him the bow and arrows. What? So obviously Katniss also has the bow and arrows. She's got an ally. All of that. Okay? You ready? This is a very emotional day. Are we all ready emotionally for today? What do you mean emotionally? Well, I can't tell you this. Read the book. One of them has to kill each other. Okay, that would be bad. Okay, page 222. The impact with the hard packed earth of the plane knocks the wind out of me. My backpack does little to soften the blow. Fortunately, my quiver was caught in the crook of my elbow, sparing both itself and my shoulder, and my bow is locked in my grasp. The ground still shakes with explosions. I can't hear them. I can't hear anything at the moment, but the apples must have set off enough mines, causing debris to activate the others. I managed to shield my face with my arms as shattered bits of matter come up. Whoa, bits of matter, some of it burning, rain down around me. An acrid smoke fills the air, which is not the best remedy for someone trying to regain the ability to breathe. After about a minute, the ground stops vibrating. I roll on my side and allow myself a moment of satisfaction at the sight of the smoldering wreckage that was recently up here at the pyramid. The careers aren't likely to salvage anything out of that. I'd better get out of here, I think. They'll be making a beeline for the place. But once I'm on my feet, I realize escape may not be so simple. I'm dizzy. Not the slightly wobbly kind, but the kind that sends the trees swooping around you and causes the earth to move in waves under your feet. I take a few steps and somehow wind up on my hands and knees. I wait a few sec minutes to let it pass, but it doesn't. Panic begins to set in. I can't stay here. Flight is essential, but I can neither walk nor hear. I place a hand to my left ear, the one that was turned towards the blast, and it comes away bloody. Have I gone deaf from the explosion? The idea frightens me. I rely as much on my ears as my eyes as a hunter, maybe more at times, but I can't let my fear show. Absolutely, positively, I am live on every screen in Panem. No blood trails, I tell myself, and manage to pull my hood up over my head. Tie the cord under my chin with uncooperative fingers. That should help soak up the blood. I can't walk, but can I crawl? I move forward tentatively. Yes, if I go very slowly, I can crawl. Most of the woods will offer sufficient cover. My only hope is to make it back to Rue's Copes and conceal myself in the greenery. I can't get caught out here on my hands and knees in the open. Not only will I face death, it's sure to be a long and painful one at Cato's hand. The thought of Prim having to watch that keeps me doggedly inching my way towards the hideout. Another blast knocks me flat on my face, a stray mine. 
set off by some collapsing crate. This happens twice more. I'm reminded of those last few kernels that burst when Prim and I pop corn over the fire at home. To say I make it in the nick of time is an understatement. I have literally just dragged myself into the tangle of bushes at the base of the trees when there's Cato barreling onto the plane, soon followed by his companions. His rage is so extreme, it might be comical. So people really do tear out their hair and beat the ground with their fists. If I didn't know what it was aimed, if I didn't know that it was aimed at me, at what I had done to him, add to that my proximity, my inability to run or defend myself, and in fact, the whole thing has me terrified. I'm glad my hiding place makes it impossible for the cameras to get a close shot of me because I'm biting my nails like there's no tomorrow, gnawing off the last bits of nail polish, trying to keep my teeth from chattering. The boy from District 3 throws stones into the ruins and must have declared all the mines activated because the careers are approaching the wreckage. Cato has finished the first phase of his tantrum and takes out his anger on the smoking remains by kicking open various containers. The other tributes are poking around in the mess looking for anything to salvage, but there's nothing. The boy from District 3 has done his job too well. This idea must occur to Cato too, because he turns on the boy and appears to be shouting at him. The boy from District 3 only has time to turn and run before Cato catches him in a headlock from behind. I can see the muscles ripple in Cato's arms as he sharply jerks the boy's head to the side. It's that quick. The death of the boy from District 3. The other two careers seem to be trying to calm Cato down. I can tell he wants to return to the woods, but they keep pointing at the sky, which puzzles me until I realize, of course, they think whoever set off the explosions is dead. They don't know about the arrows and the apples. They assume the booby trap was faulty, but that the tribute who blew up the supplies was killed doing it. If there was a cannon shot, it could have been easily lost in the subsequent explosions. The shattered remains of the thief were moved by the hovercraft. They retire to the far side of the lake to allow the game makers to retrieve the body of the boy from District 3, and they wait. I suppose a cannon goes off. A hovercraft appears and takes the dead, bo the dead boy. The sun dips below the horizon. Night falls. Up in the sky, I see the seal and know the anthem must have begun. A moment of darkness. They show the boy from District 3. They show the boy from District 10 who must have died this morning. Remember, she heard a cannon shot. We just didn't know who it was. So that's the boy from District 10. So you guys should have both of those marked off on your list of tributes who have died. So make sure you have those. Just say, then ju um, just say happened off. Yeah, but this one isn't from the bloodbath. Just say that it happened off page. We don't know. Okay. Then the seal reappears. So now they know the bomber survived. In the seal's light, I can see Cato and the girl from District 2 put on their night vision glasses. The boy from District 1 ignites a tree branch for a torch, illuminating the grim determination on all their faces. The career stride back into the woods to hunt. The dizziness has subsided, and while my left ear is still deafened, I can hear a ringing in my right. 
which seems like a good sign. There's no point in leaving my hiding place, though. I'm about as safe as I can be here at the crime scene. They probably think the bomber has a two or three hour lead on them. Still, it's a long time before I risk moving. The first thing I do is dig out my own glasses and put them on, which relaxes me a little. I have at least one of my hunter senses working. I drink some water and wash the blood from my ear, fearing the smell of meat will draw unwanted predators. Fresh blood is bad enough. I make a good meal out of the greens and roots and berries Rue and I gathered today. Where is my little ally? Did she make it back to the rendezvous point? Is she worried about me? At least the sky has shown we're both alive. I run through the surviving tributes on my fingers. The boy from one, both from two. You guys should be checking. This would be a good way to double check that you have all this right. Okay, so I'm going to start again. The boy from one, both from two, Foxface. Which district is Foxface from? Five. Both from 11 and 12. Just eight of us. Everybody's got that? I was going to say, I, I would put a post-it note in that page because we go to it often. Just eight of us. The betting must be getting really hot in the Capitol. They'll be doing special features on each of us now, probably interviewing our friends and families. It's been a long time since a tribute from District 12 made it into the top eight, and now there are two of us. Although from what Cato said, PETA's on his way out. Not that Cato is the final word on anything. Didn't he just lose his entire stash of supplies? Let the 74th Hunger Games begin, Cato, I think. Let them begin for real. This is definitely going to make the careers have a harder time, right? Do they know how to hunt for food? Do they know which berries are ones that they can eat or greens? No, they have no way to feed themselves. Other than killing tributes and taking any food that's on them. That's it. A cold breeze has sprung up. I reach for my sleeping bag before I remember I left it with Rue. I was supposed to pick up another one, but that was, but what with the mines and all, I forgot. I begin to shiver. Since roosting overnight in a tree isn't sensible anyway, I scoop out a hollow under the bushes and cover myself with leaves and pine needles. I'm still freezing. I lay my sheet of plastic over my upper body and position my backpack to block the wind. It's a little better. I begin to have more sympathy for the girl from District 8 that lit the fire that first night. But now it's me who needs to grit my teeth and tough it out until morning. More leaves, more pine needles. I pull my arms inside my jacket and tuck my knees up to my chest. Somehow, I drift off to sleep. When I open my eyes, the world looks slightly fractured, and it takes a minute to realize that the sun must be well up and the glasses fragmenting my vision. As I sit up and remove them, I hear a laugh somewhere near the lake and freeze. The laugh's distorted, but the fact that it registered at all means I must be regaining my hearing. Yes, my right ear can hear again, although it's still ringing. As for my left ear, well, at least the bleeding has stopped. So what has happened to her right now? Kaden? That left ear, hat, she does not have any hearing in it. Okay? So she's deaf on her left side. I want you to think about that. Like, even when you put your hand over your ear, sound is still getting into this ear, right? Hi. Hi. Yeah. Um, you, you, you'll have to get a char the charger out of um, Mrs. Goodroom, though. Okay. Okay, do you want me to send a kid with it? 
Okay. Who wants to volunteer real fast? Kylie, go ahead. Run this down to Mrs. McLaughlin. Okay. I peer through the bushes, afraid the careers have returned, trapping me here for an indefinite time. No, it's Foxface. Standing in the rubble of the pyramid and laughing. She's smarter than the careers, actually finding a few useful items in the ashes. A metal pot, a knife blade. I'm perplexed by her amusement until I realize that with the career stores eliminated, she might actually stand a chance, just like the rest of us. It crosses my mind to reveal myself and enlist her as a second ally against that pack, but I rule it out. There's something about that sly grin that makes me sure that befriending Foxface would ultimately get me a knife in the back. With that in mind, this might be an excellent time to shoot her, but she heard something, not me, because her head turns away towards the drop-off and she sprints for the woods. I wait. No one. Nothing shows up. Still, if Foxface thought it was dangerous, we I just turned the page, so we're at the top of page 228. Still, if Foxface thought it was dangerous, maybe it's time for me to get out of here, too. Besides, I'm eager to tell Rue about the pyramid. Since I've no idea where the careers are, the route back by the stream seems as good as any. I hurry, loaded bow in one hand, a hunk of gold, cold grossling in the other, because I'm famished now. And not just for leaves and berries, but for the fat and protein in the meat. The trip to the stream is uneventful. Once there, I refill my water and wash, taking particular care with my injured ear. Then I travel uphill using the stream as a guide. At one point, I find boot prints in the mud along the bank. The careers have been here, but not for a while. The prints are deep because they were made in soft mud, but now they're nearly dry in the hot sun. I haven't been careful enough about my own tracks, counting on a light tread and the pine needles to conceal my prints. Now I strip off my boots and socks and go barefoot up the bed of the stream. The cool water has an invigorating effect on my body, my spirits. I shoot two fish, easy pickings, in the slow-moving stream and go ahead and eat one raw, even though I've just had the grossling. The second I'll save for Rue. Gradually, subtly, the ringing in my right ear diminishes until it's gone entirely. I find myself pawing at my left ear periodically, trying to clean away whatever deadens its ability to collect sounds. If there's improvement, it's undetectable. I can't adjust to deafness in the ear. It makes me feel off-balance and defenseless to my left, blind even. My head keeps turning to the injured side as my right ear tries to compensate for the wall of nothingness. Where yesterday there was a constant flow of information. The more time that passes, the less hopeful I am that this is an injury that will heal. When I reach the site of our first meeting, I feel certain it's been undisturbed. There's no sign of Rue, not on the ground or in the trees. This is odd. By now, she should have returned, as it's midday. Undoubtedly, she spent the night in a tree somewhere. What else could she do with no light and the careers with their night vision glasses tromping around the woods? And the third fire she was supposed to set? Although I forgot to check for it last night, was the farthest from our sight of all. She's probably just being cautious about making her way back. Her way back. I wish she'd hurry because I don't want to hang around here too long. I want to spend the afternoon traveling to higher ground, hunting as we go. But there's nothing really for me to do but wait. I wash the blood out of my jacket and hair and clean my ever-growing list of wounds. The burns are much better, but I use a bit of medication medicine on them anyway. The main thing to worry about now is keeping out infection. I go ahead and eat the second fish. It isn't going to last long in this hot sun, but it should be easy enough to spear a few more for Rue if she would just show up. Feeling too vulnerable on the ground with my lopsided hearing, I scale a tree to wait. If the careers show up, this will be a fine place to shoot them from. The sun moves slowly. I do things to pass the time, 
two leaves and apply them to my stings that are deflated but still tender. Comb through my damp hair with my fingers and braid it. Lace my boots back up. Check over my bow and remaining nine arrows. Test my left ear repeatedly for signs of life by rustling a leaf near it, but without good results. Despite the grossling and the fish, my stomach's growling, and I know I'm going to have what we call a hollow day back in District 12. That's a day where no matter what you put in your belly, it's never enough. Having nothing to do but sit in a tree makes it worse, so I decide to give into it. After all, I've lost a lot of weight in the arena. I need some extra calories, and having the bow and arrow makes me far more confident about my future prospects. I slowly peel and eat a handful of nuts, my last cracker, the grossling neck. That's good because it takes time to pick clean. Finally, a grossling wing and the bird is history. But it's a hollow day, and even with all of that, I start daydreaming about food, particularly the decadent dishes served in the capital, the chicken in creamy orange sauce, sauce, cakes and pudding, bread with butter, noodles and green sauce, that lamb's, lamb and dried plum stew. I suck on a few mint leaves and tell myself to get over it. Mint is good because we drink mint leaves or mint tea after supper often, so it tricks my stomach into thinking eating time is over, sort of. Dangling up in the tree with the sun warming me, a mouthful of mint, my bow and arrows at hand. This is the most relaxed I've been since I have entered the arena. If only Rue would show up and we could clear out. I lost my spot. As the shadows grow, so does my restlessness. By late afternoon, I've resolved to go looking for her. I can at least visit the spot where she set the third fire and see if there are any clues to her whereabouts. Before I go, I scatter a few mint leaves around our old campfire. Since we gathered these some distance away, Rue will understand I've been here, while they'll mean nothing to the careers. In less than an hour, I'm at the place where we agreed to have the third fire, and I know something has gone amiss. The wood has been neatly arranged, expertly interspersed with tinder, but it has never been lit. Rue set up the fire, but never made it back here. Somewhere between the second column of smoke I spied before I blew up the supplies, and this point, she ran into trouble. I have to remind myself she's still alive. Or is she? Could the cannon shot announcing her death have come in the wee hours of the morning when even my good ear was too broken to pick it up? Will she appear in the sky tonight? No, I refuse to believe that. There could be a hundred other explanations. She could have lost her way, run into the pack of predators or another tribute like Thresh and had to hide. Whatever happened, I'm certain she's stuck out there somewhere between the second fire and the unlit one at my feet. Something is keeping her up a tree. I think I'll go hunt it down. It's a relief to be doing something after sitting around all afternoon. I creep silently through the shadows, letting them conceal me. But nothing seems suspicious. There's no sign of any kind of struggle, no disruption of the needles on the ground. I stop for just a moment when I hear it. I have to cock my head around to the side to be sure. But there it is again. Rue's four-note tune coming out of a Mockingjay's mouth. The one that means she's all right. I grin and move in the direction of the bird. An Another, just a short distance ahead, picks up the handful of notes. Rue has been singing to them, and recently. Otherwise, they'd have taken up some other song. My eyes lift up into the trees, searching for a sign of her. I swallow and sing softly back, hoping she'll know it's safe to join me. A mockingjay repeats the melody to me, and that's when I hear the scream. It's a child's scream, a young girl's scream. There's no one in the arena capable of making that sound except Rue. And now I'm running, knowing this may be a trap, knowing the three careers may be poised to attack me, but I can't help myself. There's another high-pitched cry, this time my name. 
Katniss, Katniss, Rue, I shout back so she knows I'm near, so they know I'm near. And hopefully the girl who has attacked them with tracker jackers and gotten an 11 they still can't explain will be enough to pull their attention away from her. Rue, I'm coming. When I break into the clearing, she's on the ground, hopelessly entangled in a net. She just has time to reach her hand through the mesh and say my name before the spear enters her body. <laughs> said, no, thank you. I'm sorry. The boy from District 1 dies before he can pull out the spear. My arrow drives deeply into the center of his neck. He falls to his knees and halves the brief remainder of his life by yanking out the arrow and drowning in his own blood. I'm reloading, shifting my aim from side to side while I shout at Rue, are there more? Are there more? She has to say no several times before I hear it. So who just died? The boy from District 1. And how did he die? Yeah, Katniss got him in the neck. Rue is not dead. Not yet. Oh my gosh! Rue has rolled to her side, her body curved in and around the spear. I shove the boy away from her and pull out my knife, freeing her from the net. One look at the wound and I know it's far beyond my capacity to heal. Beyond anyone's, probably. The spearhead is buried up to the shaft in her stomach. I crouch before her, staring helplessly at the embedded weapon. There's no point in comforting words and telling her she'll be all right. She's no fool. Her hand reaches out and I clutch it like a lifeline, as if it's me who's dying instead of Rue. You blew up the food, she whispers. Every last bit, I say. You have to win, she says. I'm going to. Going to win for both of us now, I promise. I can hear a cannon and look up. It must be for the boy from District 1. Don't go. Rue tightens her grip on my hand. Of course not. Staying right here, I say. I move in closer to her, pulling her head onto my lap. I gently brush the dark, thick hair back behind her ear. Sing, she says, but I barely catch the word. Sing? I think, sing what? I do know a few songs, believe it or not. There was once music in my house, too. Music I helped make. My father pulled me in with that remarkable voice, but I haven't sung much since he died, except when Prim is very sick. Then I sing her the same song she liked as a baby. Sing. My throat is tight with tears, hoarse from smoke and fatigue. But if this is Prim, if this is Prim's, I mean, Rue's last request, you guys notice that, right? You guys probably should mark that. Don't you think that's kind of important? I have to at least try. The song that comes to me is a simple lullaby, one we sing fretful, hungry babies to sleep with. It's old, very old, I think, made up long ago in our hills, what my music teacher calls a mountain air. But the words are easy and soothing, promising tomorrow will be more hopeful than this awful piece of time we call today. I give a small cough, swallow hard, and begin. I'm going to tell you that I am not singing, but I will read the song to you. <laughs> Deep in the meadow, under the willow, a bed of grass, a soft green pillow. Lay down your head and close your sleepy eyes, and when again they open, the sun will rise. Here it's safe, here it's warm, here the daisies guard you from every harm. Here your dreams are sweet, and tomorrow brings them true. Here is the place where I love you. Rue's eyes have fluttered shut. Her chest moves, 
but only slightly. My throat releases the tears and they slide down my cheeks. But I have to finish the song for her. Deep in the meadow, hidden far away, a cloak of leaves, a moonbeam ray. Forget your woes and let your troubles lay. And when again it's morning, they'll wash away. Here it's safe. Here it's warm. Here the daisies guard you from every harm. The final lines are barely audible. Here your dreams are sweet and tomorrow brings them true. Here is the place where I love you. Everything's still and quiet. Then almost eerily, the mocking jays take up my song. For a moment I sit there watching my tears drip down on her face. Ruse cannon fires. I lean forward and press my lips against her temple, slowly, slowly as if not to wake her. I lay her head back on the ground and release her hand. They'll want me to clear out now so they can collect the bodies, and there's nothing to stay for. I roll the boy from District 1 onto his face and take his pack, retrieve the arrow that ended his life. I cut Rue's pack from her back as well, knowing she'd want me to have it, but leave the spear in her stomach. Weapons and bodies will be transported to the hovercraft. I've no use for a spear, so the sooner it's gone from the arena, the better. I can't stop looking at Rue, smaller than ever, a baby animal curled up in a nest of netting. I can't bring myself to leave her like this, past harm, but seemingly seeming utterly defenseless. To hate the boy from District 1, who also appears so vulnerable in death, seems inadequate. It's the capital I hate for doing this to all of us. Gail's voice is in my head, his ravings against the capital no longer pointless, no longer to be ignored. Rue's death has forced me to confront my own fury against the cruelty, the injustice they inflict upon us. But here, even more strongly than at home, I feel my impotence. There's no way to take revenge on the capital, is there? Then I remember Peta's words on the roof. Only I keep wishing I could think of a way to, to show the capital they don't own me, that I'm more than just a piece in their games. And for the first time, I understand what he means. I want to do something right here, right now, to shame them, to make them accountable, to show the capital that whatever they do or force us to do, there is a part of every tribute they can't own. That Rue was more than a piece in their games, and so am I. A few steps into the woods grows a bank of wildflowers. Perhaps they are really weeds of some sort, but they have blossoms in beautiful shades of violet and yellow and white. I gather up an armful and come back to Rue's side. Slowly, one stem at a time, I decorate her body in the flowers, covering the ugly wound wreathing her face, weaving her hair with bright colors. They'll have to show it. Or even if they choose to turn the cameras elsewhere at this moment, they'll have to bring them back when they collect the bodies. And everyone will see her then and know I did it. I step back and take a last look at Rue. She could really be asleep in that meadow after all. Bye, Rue, I whisper. I press the three middle fingers of my left hand against my lips and hold them out in her direction. Then I walk away without looking back. The birds fall silent. Somewhere a mockingjay gives the warning whistle that precedes the hovercraft. I don't know how it knows. It must hear things that humans can't. I pause, my eyes focused on what's ahead, not what's happening behind me. It doesn't take long. Then the general bird song begins again, and I know she's gone. Another mockingjay, a young one by the looks of it, lands on a branch before me and bursts out Rue's melody. 
my song. The hovercraft were too unfamiliar for this novice to pick up, but it has mastered her handful of notes, the ones that mean she's safe. Good and safe, I say, as I pass under its branch. We don't have to worry about her now. Good and safe. I have no idea where to go. The brief sense of home I had that one night with Rue has vanished. My feet wandered this way and that until sunset. Not afraid, not even watchful, which makes me an easy target, except I'd kill anyone I met on sight. Without emotion or the slightest tremor in my hands, my hatred of the capital has not lessened my hatred of my competitors in the least, especially the careers. They at least can be made to pay for Rue's death. No one materializes, though. There aren't many of us left, and it's a big arena. Soon they'll be pulling out some other device to force us together. But there's been enough gore today. Perhaps we'll even get to sleep. Okay, any questions? Jaden, what did you raise your hand for? Oh, well, yes, you were not going to interrupt that scene with, I called it. Yeah, Quinn? I knew she was going to die because um, yesterday when she got the meal, I accidentally didn't see Daisy because I didn't see her. <laughs> and, and I read it and it said I was dead. Yeah. <laughs> I'm about to haul my packs into a tree and make camp when a silver parachute floats down and lands in front of me. A gift from a sponsor? But why now? I've been in fairly good shape with supplies. Maybe Hamish has noticed my despondency and is trying to cheer me up a bit. Or could it be something to help my ear? I open the parachute and find a small loaf of bread. It's not the fine white capital stuff. It's made of dark ration grain and sh shaped in a crescent, sprinkled with seeds. I flash back to PETA's lessons on the various district breads and in district breads in the training center. The bread came from District 11. I cautiously lift the still warm loaf. What must it have cost the people of District 11 who can't even feed themselves? How many would have had to do without to scrape up a coin, scrape up a coin to put in the collection for this one loaf? It had been meant for Rue, surely. But instead of pulling the gift when she died, They'd authorized Hamish to give it to me as a thank you or because, like me, they don't like to let debts go unpaid. For whatever reason, this is a first, a district gift to a tribute who's not your own. I lift my face and step into the last falling rays of sunlight. My thanks to the people of District 11, I say. I want them to know I know where it came from, that the full value of their gift has been recognized. I climb dangerously high into a tree, not for safety, but to get as far away from today as I can. My sleeping bag is rolled neatly in Rue's pack. Tomorrow, I'll sort through supplies. Tomorrow, I'll make a new plan. But tonight, all I can do is strap myself in and take tiny bites of the bread. It's good. It tastes of home. Soon, the seal's in the sky. The anthem plays in my right ear. I see the boy from District 1, Rue. That's all for tonight. Six of us left, I think. Only six. With the bread still locked in my hands, I fall asleep at once. I'm going to stop there. Sometimes, when things are particularly bad, my brain will give me a happy dream. A visit with my father in the woods, an hour of sunlight and cake with Prim. Tonight, it sends me Rue, still ducked in her flowers, perched in the high sea of trees, trying to teach me to talk to the mockingjays. I see no sign of her wounds, no blood, just a bright, laughing girl. She sings songs I've never heard in a clear, melodic voice on and on. 
Through the night, there's drowsy in-between period where I can hear the last few strains of her music, although she's lost in the leaves. When I fully awaken, I'm momentarily comforted. I try to hold on to that peaceful feeling of the dream, but it quickly slips away, leaving me sadder and lonelier than ever. Hey, Elizabeth, can you go shut my door? Not all the way because Mrs. Mrs. Polka should be coming in. Heaviness infuses my whole body. It's behind character traits. Heaviness infuses my whole body as if there's liquid lead in my veins. I've lost the will to do the simplest tasks, to do anything but lie here, staring unblinkingly through the canopy of leaves. For several hours, I remain motionless. As usual, it's the thought of Prim's anxious face as she watches me on the screens back home that breaks me from my lethargy. <laughs> um, the purple one cuts the best. It's okay. I give myself a series, page 240, middle of the page. I give myself a series of simple commands to follow, like, now you have to sit up, Katniss. Now you have to drink water, Katniss. I act on the orders with slow, robotic motions. Now you have to sort the packs, Katniss. Rue's pack holds my sleeping bag. Her nearly empty water skin, a handful of nuts and roots, a bit of rabbit, her extra socks, and her slingshot. The boy from District 1 has several knives, two spare spearheads, a flashlight, a small leather pouch, a first aid kit, a full bottle of water, and a pack of dried fruit. A pack of dried fruit? Out of all he might have chosen from. To me, this is a sign of extreme arrogance. Why bother to carry food when you have such a bounty back at camp? When you will kill your enemies so quickly, you'll be home before you're hungry. I can only hope the other careers traveled so lightly when it came to food and now find themselves with nothing. Speaking of which, my own supply is running low. I finish off the loaf from District 11 and the last of the rabbit. How quickly the food disappears. All I have left are roos, roots, and nuts, the boys' dried fruit, and one strip of beef. Now you have to hunt, Katniss, I tell myself. I obediently consolidate the supplies I want into my pack. After I climb down the tree, I conceal the boys' knives and spearheads in a pile of rocks so that no one else can use them. I've lost my bearings, what with all the wandering around I did yesterday evening, but I try and head back to the general direction of the stream. I know I'm on course when I, find, when I come across Rue's third unlit fire. Shortly thereafter, I discover a flock of grosslings perched in the trees and take out three before they know what hit them. I return to Rue's signal fire and start it up, not caring about the excessive smoke. Where are you, Cato? I think as I roast the birds and Rue's roots. I'm waiting right here. Who knows where the careers are now? Either too far to reach me or too sure this is a trick. Or is it possible? Too scared of me. They know I have the bow and arrows, of course. Cato saw me take them from Glimmer's body. But have they put two and two together yet? Figured out, figured out I blew up the supplies and killed their fellow career? Possibly they think Thresh did this. Wouldn't he be more likely to revenge Rue's death than I would? Being from the same district, not that he ever took any interest in her. And what about Foxface? Did she hang around and watch me blow up the supplies? No. When I caught her laughing in the ashes the next morning, it was as if someone had given her a lovely surprise. I doubt they think Peta has lit the signal fire. Cato's sure he's as good as dead. I find myself wishing I could tell Peta about the flowers I put on Rue. Now that now I understand what he was trying to say on the roof. Perhaps if he wins the games, he'll see me on Victor's night when they would play the highlights of the games on a screen over the stage where we did where we did our interviews. The winner sits in a place of honor on the platform. Surrounded by their support crew. 
but I told Rue I'd be there for both of us. And somehow that seems even more important than the bow I gave Prem. I really think I stand a chance of doing it now, winning. It's not just having the arrows or outsmarting the careers a few times, although although those things help. Something happened when I was holding Rue's hand, watching the life drain out of her. Now I am determined to avenge her, to make her loss unforgettable. And I can only do that by winning and thereby making myself unforgettable. I overcook the birds, hoping someone will show up to shoot, but no one does. Maybe the other tributes are out there beating one another senseless, which would be fine. Ever since the bloodbath, I have been featured on screens more than I care. Eventually, I wrap up my food and go back to the stream to replenish my water and gather some. But the heaviness from the morning drapes back over me. And even though it's only early evening, I climb a tree and settle in for the night. My brain begins to replay the events from yesterday. I keep seeing Rue's speared my arrow piercing the boy's neck. I don't know why I should even care about the boy. Then I realize he was my first kill. You might want to mark that too. In all honesty, has, have other people died because of her? Tra- Glimmer and the other girl died because of her, right? Um, so technically, he's not her first kill. But what makes him different? Kylie. Okay, that is a good point. Along with the other statistics they report to help people place their bets, every tribute has a list of kills. I guess technically I get credited for Glimmer and the girl from District 4 too for dumping that nest on them, but the boy from District 1 was the first person I knew would die because of my actions. Numerous animals have lost their lives at my hands, but only one human. I hear Gail saying, how different can it be really? Amazing similar in the execution. A bow pulled, an arrow shot, entirely different in the aftermath. I killed a boy whose name I don't even know. Somewhere his family is weeping for him. His, he, his friends call for my blood. Maybe he had a girlfriend who really believed he would come back. But then I think of Ruth's still body, and I'm able to banish the boy from my mind, at least for now. It's been an uneventful day. According to the sky, no deaths. I wonder how long we'll get until the next catastrophe drives us back together. If it's going to be tonight, I want to get some sleep first. I cover my good ear to block out the strains of the anthem, but then I hear the trumpets and sit straight up in anticipation. For the most part, the only communication the tributes get from outside the arena is the nightly death toll. But occasionally, there will be trumpets followed by an announcement. Usually, this will be a call to a feast. When food is scarce, the game makers will invite the players to a banquet, somewhere known to all like the cornucopia, as an inducement to gather and fight. Sometimes there is a feast, and sometimes there's nothing but a loaf of stale bread for the tributes to compete for. I wouldn't go in for the food, but this could be an ideal time to take out a few competitors. Claudius Templesmith's voice booms down from overhead, congratulating the six of us who remain. But he's not inviting us to a feast. He is saying something very confusing. There's been a rule change in the games. A rule change? That in itself is mind-bending since we don't really have any rules to speak of except don't step off your circle for 60 seconds and the unspoken rule of not eating one another. Under the new rule, both tributes from the same district will be declared winners if they are the last two alive. Claudius pauses as if he knows we're not getting it, 
and repeats the change again. The news sinks in. Two tributes can win this year if they're from the same district. Both can live. Both of us can live. Before I can stop myself, I call out PETA's name. I am stopping there. Why is this important? Aspen? It's exciting. What do you got to say over there, Olivia? Love. <laughs> this is a big deal. Katniss and Peter are not the only ones that would benefit from this rule, though, right? Is there another district that could benefit from this rule, Colton? District 2. District 2, both people are alive still, too. So both of those districts are the only ones that will benefit from this rule change, right? Who else? So we have the two from District 2. Who else is alive still? Uh, Audrey, give me one. Thresh. Who else, Olivia? Foxface. And that's it, right? So we've got two from 12, two from two, Foxface and Thresh. We only have one person that's still alive that we don't have a name for, correct? We know District 2 boy, though. But the girl we don't have a name for yet. 